Hey there everybody, you're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is part two of our segment, Legendary Weapons. I know it's been a fair while since I did one of these, hasn't it? Well, today we're going to be talking about the five of the most legendary weapons from world mythology. We're going to be talking about the crossbow from the medieval Swiss folk hero, William Tell, Odin's spear Gungnir from Norse mythology, the harpe from, of Perseus from Greek myths, the cursed blades of Muramasa Sengo from Japanese folklore, and the hook of the fo- Polynesian folk hero, Maui. Now, before we get started, I should mention that while I am a lifelong fan of these legends, I make no claim to be an expert in them. In addition, nearly every myth told ever has been told in different ways, and as such, I'm choosing to tell these stories as I first heard them. It's very possible that some listeners out there may have heard different versions, so if the version you have heard is different to the one I tell, please bear with me. In addition, I would like to make very clearly plain that I cannot speak German, I cannot speak Japanese, and I cannot speak any Polynesian languages. I can't speak Hawaiian, and I can't speak Māori. So if any, if I make any pronunciation errors in this episode, they're entirely on me. And I do not intend to make them deliberately. They are purely by accident. I hope that's okay. Finally, this episode of the Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Military oppression mentions, incest slash inbreeding mentions, children being threatened mentions, Cruel and unusual punishment mentions, rape slash sexual assault mentions, unwilling transformations, blood and gore mentions, dismemberment mentions, battlefield violence mentions, murder mentions, suicide mentions, insanity mentions, and hunting and fishing and using animal parts mentions. So if any of these are in any way a trigger for you, please give this episode a miss. Right, now that's out of the way, let's get started. So first off, we have got the crossbow of Wilhelm Tell, better known in the English-speaking world as William Tell. Now, most people these days aren't that familiar with the story of William Tell, and if they have heard of him, it's usually because of either the William Tell Overture by Giacchino Rossini, which is the one that goes, that piece of music, or because of the famous shooting through an apple scene, which is pretty much the high point of the story. However, that scene with the apple is just the middle point of the story, and... To understand the full context, you have to go back to the beginning. So our story begins in Switzerland in the early 1300s. The exact date is unknown. At the time, Switzerland was under occupation by the Austrian Habsburg emperors. Seriously, you want to see the genetic dangers of incest and inbreeding, look up the Habsburg's family tree. It is deeply messed up. Anyways, the Swiss district of Uri was under tyrannical rule of an Austrian man called Albrecht Gessler. Gessler was a cruel and incredibly conceited man who had hung his hat on the linden tree pole in the center of the square of the village of Altdorf and ordered that anyone who passed it had to bow to it. Now, Wilhelm Tell was a Swiss mountain man who lived, as you might expect, in the mountains near Altdorf. He was greatly respected and widely famed, not just for his unflinching honesty, courage, and very honorable nature, but also for his tremendous strength, and most of all, for his unrivaled level of marksmanship with his crossbow. Seriously, this guy could hit anything from any distance. According to the story, on the 18th of November, 1307, Tell and his young son Walter visited Altdorf. Tell passed by the hat, but very publicly refused to bow to it, and he was arrested as a result. Now, Gessler had heard of Tell's experience with his crossbow, but he was also enraged by Tell's defiance of his laws, and so he devised a cruel test of Tell's abilities. Tell and Walter were both to be executed, but Tell could save both their lives if he, chose, if he could shoot an apple off Walter's head from a hundred yards in a single attempt. 
Tell had no choice but to agree to this contest, otherwise they'd both be put to death. And when the day came, the crossbow belt bolt flew fast and true, splitting the apple neatly in the middle, right in two pieces. Gessler was stunned, and then he noticed that Tell had readied a second bolt in his quiver. Intrigued, Gessler asked what the second bolt was for. Tell was reluctant to say, but Gessler swore that he would not kill him. Tell replied that if the first bolt had killed his son, then the second one wouldn't have been for Gessler. Gessler was furious and ordered Tell to be put in chains, saying that he promised to spare Tell's life, but that Tell had spent the rest of his life in prison. The story goes on to say that you know, Tell was being carried by Gessler's boat to the dungeon in the castle at Kusnacht when a storm broke out on Lake Lucerne and the guards on board were terrified that their boat would sink. They begged Gessler to remove Tell's shackles so he could take the helm of the boat and save them. Gessler gave in and freed Tell, but Tell steered the boat onto a patch of rocks and leapt off the boat. Tell ran cross-country to Kusnacht uh, with Gessler in hot pursuit. Tell assassinated Gessler with a second crossbow bolt along a stretch of road cut into the rock between MNC and Kusnacht. Tell's actions sparked open rebellion among the Swiss against the Austrians, and this led to the formation of the old Swiss Confederacy. According to the story, Tell died in 1354 trying to save a child from drowning. His crossbow has gone down in history as an example of unparalleled skill and marksmanship, and he is still revered in a, as a folk hero in Switzerland to this day. So weapon number two on our list is Odin Spear Gungnir. Now, if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you'll already have heard the story of how Thor's hammer Mjolnir was created, but did you not know, did you know that Gungnir was actually created in the same contest of skill between the Dorland Smiths? Now, for those of you who may not have heard the story, well, here it is. So, one day, Loki is wandering around Asgard, feeling bored out of his mind, when he looks into Thor's bedroom and sees Thor's wife Sif asleep on the bed. Loki saw Sif's long golden hair and had the idea for a very mean prank. When Sif woke up to find out that her head had been shaved bald, she was, understandably, absolutely distraught. And Loki was caught by Thor, and Thor threatened to mash Loki to a pulp unless he was able to fix his situation. Knowing that Thor was not only capable of doing so, but fully willing, Loki set off for Nidavellir, which is the capital of the dwarven realm of Svartalfheim, immediately promising Thor that he would get something that would make it even better than it was before. When Loki arrived at Nidavellir, he went and commissioned three items from the sons of the great dwarven smith Ivaldi, a living wig made of spun gold that would be able to uh, be that would be able to be cut and would regrow and would attach to Sif's head permanently and painlessly. The great ship Skidbladnir, the best of all ships, which always had a favorable, favorable wind, would never capsize and would be and could be folded up and put in your pocket. And finally, Gungnir, Odin's spear. Now, Gungnir isn't just a regular spear; it is an instant kill weapon. Even if that weapon, even if the wound is just a mere scratch. Not only that, if you throw it at someone, as long as that person is able to be seen by you, Gungnir will actively seek them out for destruction. Think like a homing missile that can think for itself and is a one-hit kill weapon. It's incredible. And it's also a symbol of Odin's right to rule the Aesir. And the whenever Odin stares it into the ground point first, it always signifies the start of a war. Having received these fantastic items, Loki was seized by an unstoppable urge for more mischief, and he went to the two brothers called Brock and Sindri, dwarven smiths and known rivals of the sons of Ivaldi. Loki said to them, The sons of Ivaldi have made these wondrous gifts for the gods of Asgard. I bet that anything that even you two, as skilled as you are, could not hope to create three items so fantastic as these. 
Brock and Sindri were, understandably, outraged at this insult to their skill, and they made it back with Loki. The terms were simple. Brock and Sindri would craft three items to rival or surpass the works of the Sons of Ivaldi, and then they would present the, those items, and Loki would present the Sons of Ivaldi's items to the gods of Asgard. If the gods agreed that the craftsmanship of Brock and Sindri was superior, Loki would have to forfeit his head. If the Sons of Ivaldi's skill was voted better, uh, then Brock and Sindri was, would agree to have it publicly known that their work was of a lesser quality, and as, as, for a craftsman, that is a major gamble. So the two brothers set to work, but as they labored in their forge, a fly, and some sources say a horsefly, some say a gadfly, point is it was a flying insect that had a very painful sting, and who of course was none other than Loki in disguise, stung Sindri's hand. But Sindri didn't even notice. When the dwarf pulled his creation out of the fire, it was a living boar with golden hair. This was Gulenbursti, which literally means golden bristles, who gave off light in the dark and could run better than any horse, even through water or air. Sindri then set another piece of gold in the fire as Brock worked the bellows. The fly this time built Brock on the neck, but again, Sindri didn't even notice and drew out a magnificent arm ring, Draupnir, meaning dripper. From this ring, every ninth night, fell eight new golden rings of equal weight, so basically a never-ending source of wealth. Sindri then put iron in the hearth and told Brock that for this next work, they must be especially careful, for a mistake would be more costly than any of the other two projects. Loki immediately stung Brock's eyelid, and the blood blocked his eye, preventing him from properly seeing his work. Sindri produced a war hammer of unsurpassed quality, which never missed its mark, could boomerang back to its own after being thrown and would summon lightning, earthquakes, and storms. But it had one flaw. The handle was too short. You see, when Loki had bitten Brock on the, on the eye, Brock had been in, in charge of holding the, the hammers, and the hammer had sheared through the handle. It was too short. Think like a two-handed sledgehammer. That's got a handle shorter than a one-handed hammer. It is not designed for that weight. Sindri lamented that this had almost ruined the piece, which was called Mjolnir, meaning lightning. Nonetheless, sure of the great work of their three treasures, Sindri and Brock made their way to Asgard to claim the wages that were owed to them. Loki made it back to the halls of the gods before the dwarves and presented the marvels he had acquired. To Thor, he gave Sif's new hair, to Odin went Gungnir, and Frey was a happy recipient of Skidbladnir. When, Loki and, when Brock and Sindri arrived, they gave Mjolnir to Thor, Draupnir to Odin, and Gulenbursti to Frey. As grateful as these gods were to receive the gifts, especially Mjolnir, which they foresaw would be of inestimable help in their battles against the giants, they nonetheless concluded that Loki still owed the dwarves his head. But when the dwarves approached Loki with knives, Loki pointed out that he had promised him his head, but not his neck. Brock and Sindri were furious, but they agreed Loki had weaseled his way out of the deal. But as punishment, they contented themselves with sewing up his mouth and returned to their forge. Loki eventually unpicked the stitches, but he would have the suture scars on his lips from that day till Ragnarok. Now, the third weapon is one that if you've listened to the Myth vs. Media episode on Ancient Greek Mythology, or the Tales of the Unexplained on Ancient Greek Cryptids, you might already be familiar with. This is the story of Perseus and Medusa. Now, for those of you who haven't listened to the Tales of the Unexplained episode, well, here's the story. I'm going to tell it again, so if you have listened to that episode, just bear with me. So, Medusa was originally human. She was once a priestess of the goddess Athena, famed for both her beauty and her devotion to Athena. Unfortunately, 
Poseidon one day saw her and was instantly consumed with lust. He wanted her bad. Terrified, Medusa fled to the Temple of Athena and tried to claim sanctuary, but her prayers fell on deaf ears, and Poseidon raped her on the altar of the temple. Now, this is where the different versions of the story, well, they vary. And um, in the most popular version is where Athena badly messes up, in my opinion. You see, in the most popular version of the story, Athena doesn't care that Medusa had been raped. All Athena saw was that her altar, the holiest place in her temple, had been desecrated. In a rage, Athena cursed Medusa and changed her form into that of a monster with living snakes for hair, a long scaly snake-like body, and the curse that anyone who looked into Medusa's eyes would be turned to stone. Now, like I said, this is where a fair few alternate versions of the story differ. You see, Medusa was the victim in this situation, and Athena most likely knew that. But as Poseidon is not only one of the most powerful deities in the entire Greek pantheon, but also Athena's uncle, she was unable to punish him for what he did. Now, this leads us to one possible interpretation of the curse that Athena put on Medusa. What if it wasn't intended as a curse at all? Think about it. Firstly, the snakes for hair would have been a constant lookout for danger. Secondly, the scales and snake-like body would have become a natural form of armor. And thirdly, the turning people to show and direct eye contact thing is the ultimate weapon. Viewed in this light, it's very possible that Athena had tried to hide a number of gifts in the disguise of a curse. However, this doesn't change the fact that Athena lent the demigod hero Perseus her shield when Perseus went to kill Medusa, so he could use it as a mirror to see behind him and not look Medusa in the eyes. Now, Personally, I've heard a lot of different versions of the story over the years, so I'm inclined to believe the most popular version of the story, as it seems, well, to be honest, it seems the most in-character actions for the Greek gods to make, but like I said at the start of this episode, I'm just a storyteller, and you you guys listening to this may have heard different versions. The point is, each translation of the ancient Greek text changes the text slightly. Uh, it's the same with any translation, really. So there are as many different versions of the story as are people who know the story. Now, as I mentioned... Perseus had help from the gods in killing Medusa. Athena gave her his sh- gave him her shield to avoid Medusa's gaze. Hades gave him his helm of darkness, which allowed demigods to turn invisible to all senses while wearing it. Hermes gave him his winged sandals for speed and giving Perseus the power of flight and agility. And Zeus gave Perseus two things: a thick bag to put Medusa's severed head in, and an adamantine sword, the harpe. Now, a harpe is a particular type of sword that is pretty much unique to Greek and Roman mythology. As far as I know, no examples of a harpy have ever been unearthed in the material record by archaeologists, and while depictions do exist in pottery and in written records from Roman and Greek times, the the modern world has no idea what a harpy actually would look like, practically. All we know is it is described as a cross between a sickle and a sword, with a hook near the tip of the blade. Most depictions of a harpy in the modern day that I've seen portrayed as something either akin to a falchion, which is a type of medieval one-bladed sword, or as a Roman gladius with a hook on the back edge of the blade. The point is, this blade is un- the harpy of Perseus was unbelievably strong, sharp, and well-balanced, and was able to cut through nearly anything. Using it and the other gifts from the gods, Perseus slew Medusa and took her head as a trophy. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story of Perseus, because that would take up an entire episode as it is, but... Well, it's definitely worth reading because it's actually one of the few Greek myths that actually has a happy ending. So I recommend looking it up and reading it for yourselves. It's oh, definitely worth a read. Be warned though, it's not for kids. Like most Greek myths in their purest form are not for kids at all. They are very, very graphic in terms of violence, sexual content, thematic material. They are heavy reading. So just be aware that if you're going to look these up, don't go to the kids' versions. 
Go as close as you can to the original source, but just be warned, they can be very, very confronting for those who aren't prepared for it. Now, weapon number four on our list is actually a collection of weapons made by one particular swordsmith in feudal Japan. I'm referring to the legendary Motomasa Blades. Sengo Motomasa, Sengo is the first name in this context, by the way, is was a legendary swordsmith who lived in Kuwana, Japan, sometime between the 1300s and the 1500s. The exact date is not known. We know he lived prior to 1507, but there's no exact date for when he was born and when he dies. We know he's roughly in those 200 years. He was responsible for some of the best examples of Japanese swordsmithing and weapon crafting ever. Like, we're talking ever created in Japanese culture, which is, well, if you know anything about katanas, that is saying a lot. And with his only rival in terms of quality being the, quite frankly, just extraordinary quality made by Goro Masamuni. In any event, Muramasa blades were the swords of choice for the famous shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu and his successors due to their legendary sharpness. But there were problems. For one thing, a number of violent deaths were attributed to Muramasa blades being... Murders, suicides, a ritual suicide was actually one of them. So they were, they had got a reputation for being very violent swords. And coupled with the anti, the growing anti Tokugawa sentiment, the Muramasa swords get, slowly gained the reputation for being cursed. You see, legend says that Sengo Muramasa was a genius when it came to making weapons. But also, he was a sadistic, unstable man with a mind incredibly close to madness. And that these traits would pass on to his swords and to the swords made in his style. See, it was said that the wielder of a Muramasa sword would eventually be driven to murder or to commit suicide. And these, these swords hungered for blood. There is a famous story where Muramasa and Masamuni have a contest to decide the better swordsmith. They craft their own swords as near perfect to their own schools of design and crafting as is possible for them to get, and they give it to an impartial judge. The first judge, the judge first sets the Muramasa blade by holding it point down in a running stream, edge aligned upstream, so the water is passing over the blade. It was said that the Muramasa blade cut through everything. Leaves, water, fish, plants, even the air itself, so great was its bloodlust. Then the judge tried the Masamuni blade in the exact same conditions. The Masamuni blade only cut that which was in its path and refused to cut needlessly. And so the Masamuni blade was considered the winner. Now, I'm not saying one way for another whether this reputation for swords causing madness inducing bloodlust is true. And according to most scholars, Masamuni and Muramasa probably did not exist at the same time frame. But I will say this. Every single person that uh, creates anything unique always puts a bit of themselves into that creation every single time and i'm not saying one way or the other i'm just saying it's something to think about as all now our final weapon today for today is actually one you might be familiar with if you're a disney and pixar fan now like i said at the start i am i cannot speak a word of any polynesian language so any and all pronunciation errors in this section are on me now if you've seen the film moana you will be familiar with the character of Maui, voiced by Dwayne Johnson. Maui is actually a folk hero throughout pretty much all Polynesian cultures, from Hawaii to New Zealand and pretty much everything in between. And believe me, there are tons of stories about him. I was really surprised at just how much mythology is attributed to this one figure. To be honest, it reminded me of Coyote 
in Native American mythology in that he's a trickster, he's a folk hero, and every single culture in that region has got their own unique stories about him, but they all follow common tropes. And so the story I'm about to tell you is found in both Hawaiian and Maori folklore from New Zealand, and this is a story of Maui's hook and how it raised the islands. Now, um, the Maori version of the story is that Maui's older brothers always refused to let him come fishing with them. One night, he get, wove for himself a flaxen fishing line and enchanted it with a karakia to give it strength. To this, he attached the magic fish hook made from the jawbone that his grandmother had given him. Then he hid away in the hull of his brother's canoe. The next morning, when the canoe was too far from land to return, he emerged from his hiding place. His brothers wouldn't lend him any bait, so he punched himself on the nose and baited the hook with his own blood. Maui hauled up a great fish known as, and I'm probably going to butcher this, Hahauwehena, uh, sorry, Hahauwenua from the de- up from the depths. Thus, the northern island of New Zealand is known as Te Ika a Maui, the fish of Maui. When it re- emerged from the water, Maui left to find a tohunga, which is basically any expert in a field. A tohunga is, it can be craftsmen, they can be priests, they are renowned to be the experts. You want an expert, you find a tohunga. And so, if you have to find one, to perform the appropriate ceremonies and prayers, leaving his brothers in charge. They, however, did not wait for Maui to return, but began to cut up the fish, which writhed in agony, causing it to break up into mountains, cliffs, and valleys. If the brothers had listened to Maui, the island would have been a level plain, and people would have been able to travel at his surface with ease. Now, the Hawaiian version, however, says that Maui is created with the creation of the Hawaiian Islands, when he went on a fishing expedition with his friends, and, using a magic fish hook, pulled up the various island grits in the oceanic depths. Now, in some versions of the Hawaiian fisherman story, Maui is said to be a very bad fisherman. His brothers would mock him for not catching any fish, and he would retaliate with mischievous tricks against them. Now, Maui and all his brothers were sons to a divine father and mother, but only Maui was granted miraculous powers, which is why Maui is able to possess this magical hook made from the bones of his divine ancestors. So one day, his brothers went fishing, but they wouldn't permit Maui to join them on the canoe, and understandably, this really irritated him. When they returned, Maui told him told them that had he gone with them, they would have caught many more fish than just, rather than just a single shark. His brothers considered his remark and took him on the next trip. They asked him where all the good fish were. Maui then threw in his magical hook baited with alae birds sacred to his mother, Hina. The motion floor began to move and generate huge waves while Maui asked his brothers to paddle fast for accommodate, to accommodate for the oncoming fish. They paddled with huge power and were getting tired, but Maui told them not to look back because if they did, the fish would run away. One of the brothers disobeyed and the fishing line snapped, revealing new islands. Had no one looked back, there would have been more islands. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the Ravens Grove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.